Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy here as well. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in uh, chapter 2 of Hosea. Now, just, just for a little bit of review, remember, I like doing review because sometimes we forget. I was going to show the movie again, but I figured in a few weeks we'll show the movie over again, the little video. Video is good. It's from God Project, and it's uh, the Bible Project. I'm sorry. They do a, just a great job. Um, have you guys ever seen those, the Bible Project? We'll have to, I'll have to send you. It's an overview. It's, they do a, little cartoons, and they, and they draw as they go along, and they do a, just a great job of an overview of the entire book of Hosea and how it's broken up. They just do a, a really nice job. Kind of like when I was in seminary. Every time we had a book, I had to go through all 66 books, and we had to do an outline of the book and try to figure out you know, how, it, how it all fits together. I think almost all the books of the Bible now, yeah, along with a lot of other things, too. So I'm going to I'm going to read through part of chapter uh, of two. I think um, unless somebody would like to volunteer, um, I want to go through just this first page. I tell you what, let me take the first paragraph and then Michael and then if you Barb could do the third paragraph, okay? First paragraph, chapter chapter two, starting in verse four. I will have no compassion on her children because they are the children of adultery, for their mother has played the harlot and has conceived them in disgrace. For she thought, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and water, wool and linen, oil and drink. So those are, those are 13 verses, and we'll see if we can get through all of those today. If we do, if you flip it over, you've got the rest of chapter 2. So we're always, I'm a little bit more ambitious than we ever get through. I go, I, <laughs> just in case we get there, we'll, we'll have to see. So let me give you a little overview of, again, of Hosea. Because we've been only talking, this is, I think, our third week, isn't it? I think it's our third week in Hosea. So we still want to make sure we understand about this. This is, this is around the 8th century BC. And this is a time that, uh, that Israel, the northern tribes, have split off from the southern tribes. There was, a, there was after, after Solomon, uh, Solomon had a, a son, and the son was given some really bad advice, really bad advice. And the advice was tax the people. Make sure that you make them bend their knee to you because they want a strong king. So he raised the taxes, and the people said, we've had it. We're out of here. So they elected their own king, and they, they traveled north. And that was, it was like that way for over 200 years. Well, these northern tribes were the people of Israel. And what the Bible says about it in the book of Judges is that there was no good king. You know, it's kind of like we, Carol, and I, Carol and I were over at the uh, Hall of Presidents. Thank you. <laughs> we were at the Hall of Presidents the other day, and you, there's 45 presidents, and everybody has their favorites, right? I mean, I, Ronald Reagan, I really like Ronald Reagan. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, there's a few of the guys that I really think, Abraham Lincoln, everybody has good presidents and bad presidents. Well, unlike the United States, it, in Israel, it said there was not any good kings. All of them were just as wicked as one or the other. In fact, one of the most wicked kings ever was a guy named Ahab. Remember Ahab? And Ab Ahab had a, had a girlfriend, uh, his bride, okay, who was Jezebel. And Jezebel was the wicked queen. And she was so wicked that today, if you take a look at all of the names of all the people being born and all the names that are given to young girls, no woman or, or, or boy, no man or woman named their child, the little girl Jezebel. 
because Jezebel, she was just evil from the beginning to the end. And that's the story of this northern tribe, these northern tribes of Israel. Go ahead, Joe. When you refer to Israel, are you referring to all the tribes except the tribe of Judah? Yes, I'm talking about the nation of Israel during the time between about 800 to 700, 870 to about 700 BC. And during that time, the nation of Israel went to the north. What we know in the New Testament is Samaria. Jesus talked about the Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans. It's the same group of people. A little bit later, after they were conquered and resettled. But the same basic area. And it was the ten tribes that separated from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And that was the land of what's called Judah. Judah. I don't know why that does that. So, that, so that's, that's who it was. It was Israel. So we're talking, so Hosea is a prophet. There are two prophets that were called to speak to these, these horrible people. You'd think there'd be more than that because they were so wicked. You would think that God would send a few more. Um, but there were only these two. There was, there was Hosea, and then there's a prophet Amos. And those are the two prophets that God sent to the northern tribes of Israel. And the message was pretty similar on both of them. And we're going to see, in fact, what I said yesterday or last week was that uh, the first chapter up until the first three verses of chapter two are kind of an overview of the entire book. Because what God does is God brings, he tells, he tells Hosea to take of himself a wife of whoredom, a wife of whoredom, a prostitute. And he says, I want you to marry Gomer, okay? And she's going to be unfaithful to you. Now that's, that's not a real good thing. If you're a prophet, that's not a, that's not a good word for you, right? But if really, if you take a look at all of, the test of all of the Old Testament prophets, they all had their individual struggles. They were all called to do things. They were thrown in cisterns. They were, oh, thank you so much. They, were, they, were, uh, they, had, they had many, many problems. And this is just one of the problems that Hosea had. But what we said, and it's very, very clear, and you'll see it today as well, that Hosea was told to take a, uh, uh, a woman of whoredom, okay, as his wife, because it was a picture. It was a picture of how God felt of Israel. Because the Jews were his people. He appeared to Abraham and he said, I'll be your God and your people will be my people. And God gave to Abraham and, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes. He gave to them the promised land. That's, he, was, he wanted to be their God. He wanted to be their God. He wanted the Jews, the Jewish people, to be able to bring the Messiah. And God had invested in the people, and he gave them the commandments, and they violated the commandments. I mean, just as soon as they had them, they violated them. They started dancing around golden calves while Moses was still on, on Mount Sinai. And that continued all the way through, to the point that the northern tribes had, had embraced, even though they still understood who Jehovah was, even though they still offered him sacrifice. Even though they called them the children of Abraham, there was this God named Baal, or Baal, depending on how it's pronounced. But this God, Baal, was the God of agriculture as well as fertility. And it was a big temptation for them to be able to do something for Baal because their neighbors said, hey, if you want good crops, you better dance around the Asherah pole a little bit for Baal because he's the one that's going to send you rain. And then wouldn't you know it would rain? Just surprise, surprise. So they attributed that the rain that they got was because they had danced around and offered something to Baal. 
And Baal was also the goddess of fertility. Not only fertility for people, but also for their crops. So wouldn't you know it? The spring would come, and their little, their little lamb or little sheep would have a yearling, have a little baby. They'd say, well, Baal must have done it. Baal must have done it. Now, it's interesting. I'm just giving you kind of an overview of what we've been talking about the last two weeks. But here's the thing. That's how things, that still influences us today. That still happens today. I mean, how many times have you been told or seen somebody that's superstitious about something? You know, um, I used to play ball. I used to play baseball. I played football. You might not look, know it looking at me, but I used to be quite an athlete, okay? But I used to play a lot of ball. And the, my friends, a lot of them, they picked up the superstitions that the ball players had. You know, they'd wear a lucky hat. I, I remember this was, this was true is that uh, we were behind. We were, we were playing ball, and uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a pretty competitive league, and we were playing baseball. And we were behind, I think it was like five runs. It was like seven to two, and it was like the seventh inning. And we, it was not going to be good because we were going to lose the game. And, and one of the guys said, okay, it's time to rally. Put your rally hats on. And all of us took our baseball caps, and we put them on backwards. And wouldn't you know it, we won the game. Now, see... That's, that's hard. I mean, when you do something like that and all of a sudden you win the game, you come from behind, we scored like five or six runs. I mean, I think I, I, hit, I hit a home run. I mean, there's a couple other guys. And it's like, what happened? We attribute it to the hat. Well, it's the same way these people of Israel were attributing everything that God was actually giving them. God was the one that was sending the rain. God was the one that was increasing their flocks. God was doing all of that. But they would attribute it to, to Baal. Look at placebos. That's exactly right. Yeah, people do that for... Exactly. If you believe it, it must be true. It must be true. I think I told you last time, I, I told you the story that when we were in Mexico, and, and I have stories from Mexico because it was an important part of time in our life. I mean, my, my, with my kids that ended up marrying students that they went to school with. They married classmates. So... The Mexican heritage is a big part of our family. But there was a, there was a thing in, in Christianity there, which was called the cult of the virgin. And I mean no disrespect to Catholics. That's what they call it there. They call it the cult of the virgin. It's an, it's an, it's an extreme worship, an extreme veneration for the, the, the mother of God, for the Virgin Mary. And as a result, the children, young girls, when they were married, were obligated by tradition to make a vow to the virgin. To make a vow to the virgin. It's, 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 it's similar to this. Because what happens is this. Is if they don't. And something bad happens. Guess what? They'll say, ah, it was you. You got married and you didn't take the vow. And now Uncle Jose fell off his burrow and broke his leg. You see how that happens? You see how, you see how that can be encouraged. So as we're reading through this, you can see God's perspective coming through. At the same time, we have an understanding of how these things happen to Israel. And the warning is, remember, it's so easy for us to think the same thing, to think the same thing, that somehow there's something supernatural out there besides God. And the problem is there is. There is something supernatural besides God, and you don't want to deal with it. You don't want to deal with it. That's, a, that's the presence of darkness. So let's, let's go on. So, so we see uh, verse 4. It says here, it says, I have no compassion upon her children because they are the children of adultery for her, their mother has played the harlot and has conceived them in disgrace. 
For she thought I will go after my lovers and give me, who give me bread and water, wool and linen, oil and drink. God is saying this. He's saying, here's the thing. Now, this is poetry, by the way. In poetry, you're going to kind of go from good cop to bad cop. You're going to, you're going to, these are refrains. And you're going to see all through the book Hosea that God will say, I won't, I won't have any compassion on them. And then he'll say, but I'll restore them. I won't have any compassion on them, but I'll love them forever. I won't have any compassion on them. I'll destroy them. I'll destroy their cities. I'll destroy their children. And they'll never again have any food or water. But I love my children. I'll, re I'll restore them. And this is, this, is, this is poetry. This is poetry. And it's kind of the way we think often, right? I mean, there's a lot of times I'll say things and I'll realize, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I have to, I have to take it back. Well, this isn't God taking it back. This is, this is Hebrew poetry. So God says this, I have no compassion on our children because they are the children of adultery. God often compares sexual adultery and fornication to idolatry. God sees it that way. God sees it that he is, his, he is our, our mother and father. In fact, the church is called the bride of Christ the bride of Christ. And God wants us to be faithful. So we're unfaithful to God. It's almost as like, in fact, worse than, worse than a husband or a wife being unfaithful to their spouse. It's, it's the same type of thing. God looks at it as, as adultery. That's why he says, their mother has played the harlot and has conceived them in disgrace. See, it's, it's, one, it's one thing to slip and fall. You know, it's one thing to slip and fall. I mean, there's, there's things you're not supposed to do, but sometimes you slip and you fall and you make a mistake. But a good husband, a good wife will quickly repent, understand that, that they've got to be faithful, and they'll come back. A harlot, on the other hand, is a completely different story. God just doesn't see the transgression. He sees the attitude. He sees the profession. He doesn't just see... The transgression. God forgives transgressions all the time, but he, he calls it a harlot. Now, what does a harlot do? A harlot, that's, that's, their, that's what they're doing. They're, they're intentionally going out after illicit things. They're, they're intentionally going after it. And that's why, that's why <laughs> you've got to feel sorry for Hosea, because Hosea was told to take for himself a wife of harlotry. Okay? And you're going to see as these chapters unwind, it's going to be interesting, because there's going to be a point where God tells Hosea, to go get her back. She's now living with somebody else, okay? She's living with somebody else, laughing at Hosea. And Hosea is told to go and actually purchase her back with 15 pieces of silver, which is a very common thing in the Bible, 15 pieces of silver. Um, go, well, exactly right. Except, except remembering he's, he's imitating God's love for us. God's unfailing love that even though his wife had committed adultery and gone into harlotry and had children of adultery. Okay, we talked about that last week. If you have women, if you have children of adultery, what does that mean? That means they're probably not your kids. Okay, <laughs> they've got your name, but they're not your kids. Okay, somebody else was playing in my barn, right? That's what. That's what. That's what. Uh, that's what Samson said, you know, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you know, <laughs> if you haven't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have been able to solve my riddle. So, so, for she thought, I will go after my lovers who give me bread and water, wool and linen, oil and drink. So what this is, it's, it's a direct 
um, a direct correlation to what the people of Israel are hoping to get from their identification with Baal. Baal is a god of fertility as well as he's the rainmaker. So that's what they're saying. So bread and water is coming because the earth is watered by the rain that Baal has given them, and as a result, they have crops. Wool and linen, wool and linen come from sheep, and sheep need to be, uh, need to be born. Uh, oil and drink. This is all coming because of their relationship with Baal. So the woman of harlotry, okay, is going to, to Baal in order to get these things instead of relying on Hosea. The people of Israel doing this with Baal rather than relying on God. God verse 6, it says, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up her path with thorns and enclose her with a wall so she cannot find her way. Have you ever heard the term that we want, we pray sometimes for a hedge of protection? Have you heard that? That's, this is where this is coming from. Okay, There's a couple other places in the Bible that this idea of a hedge of protection. See, a hedge of protection does two things. Fences, what they say, fences make good neighbors, right? Fences make good neighbors because you build a fence and now you have a good neighbor because the neighbor's not trampling on your stuff. His stuff stays on his side. His barking dog stays on his side of the fence. His kids play over there. They don't play on my property. Fences make good neighbors. So a hedge of protection works two ways. It keeps the enemy out, but it also hedges you in. And this is what this is talking with this. I will hedge up her path with thorns and I will close her within a wall. This is a promise, actually. This is a good promise. It doesn't sound like it, but it's a good promise. What God is saying is he's saying, here's the thing. I'll build the hedge and I'll, and I'll trim it with thorns and it's going to keep you on the path, the narrow path. Have you gone bowling lately? Have you gone bowling lately? If you have, they put up bumpers now. Remember the bumpers they put in? Instead of, instead of the gutter balls, they put in a foam bumper. Did you know they do that for adults now? Woohoo! I'm excited, man. I, I'm a bowler now. I can go out and bowl because they put bumpers up. Well, that's what, that's what God does with this hedge of protection. The idea is that even when you start veering off the course, the hedge brings you, brings you back. I have, uh, I've told this story before, and Carol's here now, so she'll attest that we, when, when we had little kids, when, we, when our kids were little, we knew that it was impossible for their mom or myself to be able to watch over them all the time. We just knew that it was. It just, it's just impossible. And for some reason, I got it in my head that I prayed a special prayer. And it was kind of this kind of prayer, rather than a hedge of protection. I prayed that if my kids started doing something, they would get caught. <laughs> they, they would get caught. Because I wanted them not to stray too far. So, so as soon as they do something wrong, I just pray that, I pray that they would get caught, okay, so that we could bring them back in. Because I don't want them doing things that I don't know about for years and years and years because it's just going to get worse, right? So I want them to, to get caught. True story. So we were, the, my kids, the kids were probably, I don't know, 9, 10 years old, something like that. And, I, and both, of my, both of our kids were, were pretty good athletes. They were pretty good athletes. And, and uh, the, door, the doorbell rang. And here was my son with some mother along with some crying boy and the mother explained to me that they were throwing rocks and my son hit her son with a with a rock okay well it wasn't that bad because it wasn't rocks they were dirt clocks okay they were dirt clocks and all the kids were doing it the thing was it's two things that i kind of exactly two things number one my son was a better athlete 
we, kids were throwing rocks at each other, but my, my son was able to hit him in the head with it, you know? So that kind of made me proud, okay? <laughs> How far away were you? 30 feet. A good shot. <laughs> no, good shot. But the thing was, is they got caught. And that was kind of an answer to prayer. And this is what, yeah, and this is what, this is what got, yeah, the, you know, the kids ended up knowing that we prayed that way. And they, they knew it, and they didn't like it. They didn't like it. But, but this is what God is doing. He, I will hedge up her path with thorns and enclose her with a wall so she cannot find her way. She will pursue her lovers but not catch them. She will seek them but not find them. And that's this hedge of protection. God is, God is trying to do things to make it hard for them to be able to find their way into illicit activity. No, law enforcement does it with ankle bracelets. That's the same thing, yeah. They yeah. Only do so much. Yeah, yeah, same thing. Actually, I thought seat, seat belts were a great help. It stopped the kids from wrestling around in the back seat. They can only get so close to each other, you know, but they had to be staying with the same. So seat belts, hedge of protection. And we do that. I mean, I've, I've, I've prayed with people. And, and I don't usually use that term, but I've heard other people use it a lot. His pray, Lord, a, a hedge of protection, a hedge of protection around them, you know. It, it's, I usually pray for angels. I figure angels are even better than, than hedges, you know. But that's, that's where this, this comes from. Uh, verse 7b, it says, Then she will say, I will return to my first husband, for then I was better off than now. For she does not acknowledge that it was I who gave her grain, new wine, and oil, who lavished her with silver and gold, which they crafted for Baal. So this is kind of, a, a kind of like, you kind of can get lost in here, except you have to understand it's Hebrew poetry. Because what this is basically saying is that at some point, these people that depart, these wars of whoredom, okay, uh, those. Wives of whoredom, okay? <laughs> I said it wrong. <laughs> Wars of whoredom. These wives of whoredom. I, I can back it up and erase it off the tape. So, <laughs> so, so, so sometimes these people that are, are straying from God will return. And what this is saying is that, is that maybe they'll recognize that some of the things that I was providing, that they were actually attributing to somebody else, was actually from me was actually from me. It, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like figuring out that Santa Claus is really your mom or dad, and now you know who to thank, you know? Now you know who to really thank and, 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 and say, that's, that's where it actually came from. That's why Santa Claus knew exactly what I wanted, because I told my mom and my dad. That's what it was. And this is kind of the same thing. They'll recognize that the oil, the, the grain, the new wine, okay, even the silver and the gold is, is all coming really from me. It's from me. Yeah. So it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? Jesus, God said, you can have anything you want. Just stay away from these two trees. You know, don't touch those two trees. Just, just don't, don't eat of those two trees. And, and that's, that, that's what they wanted. I was, yeah. I was, I was doing some research on this. And there's, there's if, you've, if you've never read Bible commentaries, they're really, they're really great. Because it, it's kind of like having a teacher in your, in, your, in your desk. I mean, they're just kind of teaching you these things. And, and I came, I came across this, this verse, and, and this is from a, from a commentary that I have in my library. And it says this, it says, God gives to man the trees of the forest and the iron in the ground. He gives man the brains to make an ax and nails from the iron. 
and the energy to cut down the tree, the skill to fashion the wood into beam. God even gives man the cleverness to make the handle from the wood and, and lead from the iron and combine it into effective hammer. Then man takes the beams, the nails, the hammer, and he nails God to a cross. Isn't that something? I mean, that says, this is what this is saying. Okay, God is the one that God gave them the wine and the oil and the flax and the sheep and the goats and all of these things that they're attributing to Baal. But perhaps it's saying, perhaps she'll come back and she'll realize that the source is really from, from me. It was actually better off where I was. This is, this is kind of like the grass is greener on the other side, right? I mean, we've all experienced that, right? We've you see something and you got to have it, you know, we, you move to a new neighborhood. You see everybody, you say, oh man, I need a new house. I need something bigger. I need something more grandiose, you know. So you, so you move to a new neighborhood and you realize the old neighborhood was actually pretty good. The, the people cared about me. They knew me. They, they knew who I was. And it was, it was nice. We've, we've, we've uh, it's not really a lament, but we've just, just recognized over the years that when we were first married, we lived in a, in a smaller home. In a, in a small little lower middle class area that didn't have attached garages and, and didn't have garage door openers. And as a result, when you came home, people were sitting on porches and you parked in the street and you waved to your neighbors and everybody knew you. And then as we got a little bit more prosperous and we moved and we moved into a neighborhood and the houses were nicer, and the garage was nice in the back, and you hit the remote, and the garage door would open up, and you'd go into the garage, and you'd close the garage door, and you wouldn't see your neighbors. You know, and it was just kind of like, you know, there was something about the old neighborhood that was, that was nice. There was something about that old neighborhood that was, that was beneficial. There was something there. Not that we wanted to move back, but there was something about there that I didn't realize when I realized that grass was greener somewhere else. And this is kind of what this is talking about. Yeah, we, we grew up knowing that any one of the moms was just as good as ours, right? Yeah, if they said something, we had to do it. Oh, that's right. I got swatted by a few neighbors and <laughs> a few nuns along the way, you know. It was all for my benefit, I'm sure. So, verse 9. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. I will take my wool and linen linen which were given to cover up her nakedness, and I will expose her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one will deliver her out of my hands. I'll put an end to her exalt exaltation, her feasts, her moons, her Sabbaths, all of her appointed feasts. I'm going to stop there just for a second. The, um, this is, remember, this is poetry, so it's repeating the same type of thing, okay? You have this parallelism. In fact, we talked about that in, in Bible study the other day, that often you see in the Bible there's this parallel. It says, it says it one time, then it says it again, it says it a third time, just to make sure you truly understand what's going on. God is saying the same thing. He's going to take these things away so that they understand what it is. But it's interesting is he's talking about her feast, new moons, and Sabbaths. The worship of Baal wasn't just casual. It wasn't just a superstition. It wasn't just taking a hat, a baseball hat, and putting it on backwards. This was a true religion that had feasts and sacrifices and rituals and Sabbath, it was, in many ways, it was a copy, a very bad copy of what the people of Israel knew with Jehovah. And as a result, they were actually, it was, it, you know, it's one thing to put a baseball cap on backwards, okay? 
But it's completely different to go to these feasts and, and do the sacrifices and offer the sacrifices and bring your gold and your silver and your, all those things to some idol and, and putting it down. I mean, this is, you can imagine the offense that God felt when, when that happens. Um, Especially their firstborn. Yes. There, there, was, there was ritualistic, not all the time, but there were periods of time that there was ritualistic sacrifice of children. Okay, and I'm not going to go into some of the details, but you can imagine. I mean, Baal was one of them, but there was also other gods that these people embraced, um, and they would sacrifice them. Uh, you, you see that. If you're reading through the book of Judges, you'll see sometimes that certain kings of Israel were known because they sacrificed their firstborn son to an idol. Sacrifice, ritual sacrifice. They killed their children. They killed their children in order to sacrifice to God, thinking that they're doing some kind of a, a, a service because now they're going to get the, the new wine and things. And, and God, God takes this pretty seriously. He, he really does. One of, the, one of the questions that this begs is, is, what does it mean to us? What does it mean to us? And, I'm, and I'm, I'm still a little perplexed about that. I really am because I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that watching TV is idol worship. I'm, I'm not sure that having a cell phone or having an earplug in your ear all the time is, is idol worship. I know, I know that some people say that. I'm not sure. I think that there's, there's true idols out there, and there's ways that we can depart so far from, from God that we actually get into, into bed with the bales and stuff like that. You know, I, I think that's, that's the issue. If you think somehow that by doing something, but, you know, there were, when we were in Mexico, there were people that, there's a pyramid of the sun and the pyramid of the moon um, down, in, down in Mexico, right outside of Mexico City. It goes back way back, not even the Aztecs. It was a group actually before that. Um, and there were, these crazy people would, they had a certain feast day and they'd travel up to the Temple of the Sun and they'd be on the top of this pyramid and do certain things and leave certain things thinking that that was somehow going to attribute some benefit in their life. They would do it on the solar, equ uh, the, the summer equinox or the, the fall equinox or whatever it was. And, and that's, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. When you're starting to do those types of things and you're attributing the success of your children or your fertility or you're trying to have a child and you think doing that somehow is going to, you know, God doesn't, 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 doesn't think much of that. Doesn't think much of that at all. So I think a lot of the things that we do lightly, we have, don't have to worry about, but it's attributing the supernatural to something other than God is, is, is what's very dangerous. Feng Shui. Feng Shui is that way. If you, if you read up on that, that's like that. It's, it's like everything is attributed to, to parallels and north and south and east and west and, and certain things. And, you know, they, these crazy people will hire these Feng Shui priests. Where did they, they get their degree, you know? And, and they'll, they'll come in and they'll tell you how to rearrange your house or how to build your house or where to put your windows. And, and they'll, they'll charge you, you know. We survive on offerings. They charge, <laughs> you know. You know they, they'll, they'll charge you for that. that that's, now, and remember, there's, there's religions and there's false religions. I mean, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism and things like that, those are also false religions. You know, when, when, you, go over to, when you go over to China at Disney, and you and you go through the you go through the through the gift shops and stuff like that. Remember, there's a big Buddha in there. Okay, there's a big Buddha in there, and and we've always been a little careful about 
about picking up any of those trinkets, okay? Because even though we, yeah, we just, I just, I just, I just stay away from that. I just think it's a, it's a good thing to stay away from those types of things. That is an idol, okay? That's an idol. When, when people are putting coins and stuff like that on the Buddhas and they're touching the Buddha and they're praying to Buddha, that's, that's this, okay? You gotta, you gotta stay away from that. God doesn't, doesn't. Crystals, yeah, and, and, and see, that's what I'm saying. I think those, I think there's enough of that out there, as, as Talitha would say, when you, when you tribute benefits, your benefits, your goodwill, when you're attributing those things to those types of things, that's idolatry. I think that when we say you're watching too much TV, you know, or you're listening to the radio too much, um, that's trivial, trivializing what God is really saying, because there are, there are truly, there's truly idols out there, and there are false gods out there. And remember, the reason there's sometimes spiritual power is because there is the spiritual power in the darkness. You know, there is dark and there is light. Now, light will scatter the darkness, okay? And greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. So we have a lot of strength and confidence in our, in our God, but there is power on the dark side. That's why Luke was encouraged to go to the dark side. A little Star Wars trivia there for you. So, <laughs> verse 12, I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, which she thinks are the wages paid by her lovers, and I'll make them a thicket, and the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the bales when she burned incense to them. So, again, parallelism. God is going to destroy her vines and figs because... Why is he going to do this? Not just to punish them, because she thinks they're part of the wages. She thinks that these figs trees that she's eating from, the fruits of the vine, are because of the worship of Baal. And, and because of that, God's going to destroy those things. And I'll let the beasts of the field devour them. I'll punish her for the days of the Baals when she burned incense to them. Um, so let's go on. Where are we? We are in verse 13. Let's flip the page. Woo-woo! When she decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. Uh, it's interesting. In, in the books of poetry, we're, we're trying to figure out, because Hebrew is typically, you know, when we, when we write poetry, we typically bring it into the middle of the verse. And, you know, like if you, in your Bible, see on this side, it's poetry. So what it does is it indents it. It kind of puts it in italics. And we can see that it's poetry. Well, Hebrew wasn't that way. Hebrew wasn't that way. There was no way in Hebrew to differentiate different types of things. In fact, there was very little punctuation. There, it was some punctuation in Hebrew. It isn't like they don't have commas and periods. They don't have that, but they, they did have some punctuation. And the reason I say that is because if you see this, but me, she forgot, declares the Lord. In Hebrew, if you're reading the manuscripts, and I don't, but, but I'm told that when you read the manuscripts, even when they copied it, there was a declarative statement that God is reminding that this, even though this is Hosea that is speaking this, God is putting his autograph on it. And when he puts his autograph on it, it's translated as declares the Lord. Declares the Lord. It's a reminder that this is not just poetry. This is not just Hosea saying, this is what I think God wants to say to you. Have you ever noticed that's how modern prophecy is typically done? I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I, I love it when people prophesy and people say things. I think that's, that's fine. And the Spirit of God can definitely move that way. But typically they'll say, I believe God is saying to us today, okay? Yeah, so it gives you a little bit of a flexibility there. You know, 
prophets that prophesy something that, that doesn't come true are supposed to be stoned. So if I was a prophet, I would kind of <laughs> hedge that. I'd, I'd hedge that with, I believe this is what God wants to tell you, right? I believe God would tell you this, okay? The Bible says this. That's, that's a good thing. Well, this is not that. This is declares the Lord. This is in the Hebrew is making very, very clear that it's God that is saying this. God has told Hosea to do something that's going to be very, very difficult for him. It's going to even get worse. And he's having children of a woman that's out there prostituting herself. But God is speaking through Hosea, and he's giving a very clear demarcation that what he's speaking is him, and he's declaring it himself. But me, she forgot. The next section is called God's mercy to Israel. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. So now things have changed. It's kind of like good cop, bad cop. Good cop, bad cop. Now we're going into the good cop part. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and lead her into the wilderness and speak to her tenderly. I'll allure her. I'll, I'll, I'll bring her in. God looks forward to a day, okay? God looks forward to a day when he will bring the people of Israel back. The people of Israel, he'll, he'll bring back to them um, and speak to her tenderly. Then I will give back her vineyards and make the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. Now, what's interesting here, and I had to do this, um, Achor says, I will lure her, I speak comfort to her. Uh, once Israel has felt the discomfort of her deprivation, then she will listen to the voice of God once again, and he'll allure her back to himself. Now, what's interesting is this, is that if you've, heard the, you've heard the saying that, you know, sometimes you don't change until you hit bottom, right? You've got you to gotta hit bottom. And, you know, we've got a, a few friends that are in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and, and gone through different issues and things like that. And they'll tell you that typically, typically, they don't really start coming back. There's really no re true recovery until they, they hit bottom. And that's what's happening here, is that there'll be a time when people will realize, you know, sometimes you just realize you're naked. Well, I, you know, I, I, I've lost everything. I, I, I've got to do something. I can't walk around like this in public anymore. I'm, I'm naked. I'm, I've been exposed. And as a result, you come back to God. Well, actually, those things, God's luring you. God, God uses those things. Those, those, those are good times. Sometimes the, the most difficult times in our life are sometimes the growing times we have in our life. If you look back, if you look back in your life, you'll realize that sometimes some of the difficult things you went through were actually good. They, they, they worked for your benefit. I think there's a scripture verse that says that, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, Romans. It says, you know, those, all those things will work for your benefit. They'll, they'll work for your benefit. They'll, those things will turn out to be good. They'll turn out to be good. And this is God luring you. And it's often when we hit rock bottom, when we, we have nothing else to go to. Um, and then it says, I will answer. What a, what a blessing. I mean, all of a sudden, God answers his people. You know, there's a, there's a period of time before Christ is born. It's, it's about 400 years. Um, the Bible ends, okay, the, the Bible ends with a promise through Malachi that there'll be a Messiah, there'll be a Redeemer. And the Jewish people call it the silent years, the silent years, because God goes silent, okay? But then John the Baptist comes on the scene 400 years later. He's the forerunner of Jesus Christ. God, again, speaks to his people. 
God speaks to his people. And that's what it's saying here, is that over a period of time, God will do everything he possibly can to try to bring you back. But ultimately, there'll be a time when God speaks again to his people. And he says, I will answer their prayer. I'll answer their prayer. That's a, that's a, that's a great hope. I love it when God answers my, my prayer. This is the same principle Jesus taught in John 15, 17. It says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. It shall be done for you. You know, God is a faithful God, but for God to answer your prayers, he wants you to be on his path. God will do the same thing that he did to you that he did to Israel. God disciplines those who he loves, right? And I don't mind it. I mean, discipline doesn't feel comfortable when it's been happening, but discipline is good because it brings you back to where God wants you. It says God will answer. Then it says the earth will answer with grain, the new wine and new oil, okay? This is, this is the, same, this is the same, same principle. God says that if you, if, you, if you seek after me, I'll give you these things, okay? In Matthew 6.33, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God. Seek God and his righteousness and all these things that you're chasing after, all of these things that you really want from everybody else, they'll be added to you. God will give you the things that you, that you need, but seek first the, the kingdom of God. Um. There's a, there's, a, there's a message here, the Valley of Achor, right? The Valley of Achor. The Valley of Achor is the door of hope. It says, I'll allure her at the Valley of Achor. Well, the Valley of Achor, if you don't remember that, if you go back to Joshua, remember you have the first five books of the Bible, and then you have Joshua leads the people into the promised land. And very quickly, all of a sudden, the second city they go after, they're defeated. And the reason they're defeated is because God says, don't plunder the city, leave it. Don't take anything for yourself. And there was a guy named Achan, okay? And Achan took some of the gold, some of the trinkets, and he hid it in his tent. And all of a sudden, Joshua goes out and he has this huge defeat. He has, it's like, what's going on here? So he prays to God and God says, somebody took some plunder. See, faithfulness is more important than sacrifice. Faithfulness is more important. God will provide, but God gave instructions that they weren't to plunder the plunder belonged to God. And this was the very first city, by the way, which happens to go with the whole idea of the first belongs to God. You know, the first part always belongs to God. The tithe belongs to God. The first, the very first city that they conquered, they were not supposed to take any plunder from because it all belonged to God. And they did. And they violated what God had told them. God didn't tell them why. God just gave them a direction. You know, for those of you that have been in the military, you don't question your orders. You just do what's said. God sometimes just wants you to do what he says. Well, that's what this is referring to. This is, this is the valley of, of uh, Achor. And it was in the valley of Achor that Achan's sin was discovered. And that's why it's mentioned here. That's why it's mentioned. Um, it says, then I will give back her vineyards and make the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. So even at the low point of Israel, when Joshua is leading his people into Israel and they have this defeat, that defeat is actually discipline. And that discipline becomes hope. I'll take the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. So even in our lowest points when God is disciplining, and we've, we've gone through that. I mean, if I went around the table, you can all tell me of times when it got pretty bad. I mean, there were, there were, there were difficult times you went through. And a lot of times those are self-inflicted wounds, right? So often the problems we face today are self-inflicted, which is really unusual. Most, all throughout history, 
Most of the wounds of the people suffered were not self-inflicted. They were the enemy coming over, right? You know, we were, just, we were reading that, you know, we were reading that uh, this last weekend. You know, it was in the spring when the kings go to war, you know. People battled, king, other kings, the other city would come in and they'd conquer you and they'd take your wives and take your livestock and they'd kill the men. You know, these things happened. Famine happened often. People had to live. It took 90% of their effort just to be able to eat out a living. Um, everybody was subject to famine and frost and battles and fatigue. Today, most of our, most of our wounds are self-inflicted. They're, they're stupid things that we do. There's, there's, there's things we're not supposed to do. We know that children that are born in the inner city that don't have a mom and a dad and that are growing up in poverty and their children giving children, the likelihood of those kids being able to get through high school and get into college and to be able to eke out a living and to have a better life, it's, they've been handicapped. Those are self-inflicted wounds. Those are self-inflicted wounds. But here's the thing. When, when God disciplines us, when God shows us a better way and he disciplines us, those are actually times of hope. Because it's God that's doing the discipline. It's your, it's your dad. It's your dad coming in and rescuing you. It's your dad picking you up at school because the principal's called you into the principal's. You're in the principal's office and your dad has to pick you up. And that's the very worst thing that could ever happen to you. But it's a time of hope because it's your dad that's picking you up. It's not somebody else. You're not just turned into the street. It's your dad picking you up. She will respond as she did in the days of her youth. And, and in the day she came out of Egypt, in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Now, in the days of her youth, as in the days she came out of Egypt, God is looking at Israel as a child that's growing up. And he says, don't you remember when you were a child and you were enslaved in Egypt and you came out of Egypt? I, you know, Moses came in and the plagues and you came out and I parted the sea and you walked through and the chariots destroyed. And wasn't that a good time? Wasn't that a good time? They'll return. He's looking to Israel to return to that time. And then he goes one step further. and It's actually prophetic. He says, in that day, you will no longer call me master, but you'll call me husband. You'll call me husband. So the, that instead of just a master, just a, a slave-master relationship, you'll actually be more of a husband. And that's, again, this is kind of prophetic because the church is called the, the bride of Christ. Now, if you notice, it would normally, the way I read it is the way that you think it. You'll no longer call me master. Master, but you call me husband, for I will remove her lips from the name of the Baals. Now, this was Hebrew poetry. It was put in this way, exactly this way, because the word master in Hebrew sounds a lot like the word Baal. So they're using a little rhyme here. So you'll no longer call me master, for I'll remove you from the lip, I'll, I'll remove from her lips the name of the Baals. So the idea of master and Baals are put together on the same line or right after each other because they, they rhyme. Same thing that we do with songs. If you ever take a look at, <laughs> you ever take a song of some of the songs we sing and you realize, why are they broken up that way? I mean, this sentence ends here, then two words are in here, and then we sing that, and then we do the refrain. I mean, it's kind of interesting when you take a look at it, but it's because of poetry. It's, it's, how, it's how it's put together. It's, it's how it rhymes. On that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that crawl on the ground. And I'll abolish bowl and sword and weapons of war in the land, and they will make them lie down in safety. So God is actually not only trying to talk about Israel, 
and what they're going to go through. But God is looking way forward because this safety for Israel hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. Because quite frankly, after Hosea gets, gets done preaching, guess what's going to happen? The Assyrians are going to come in. The Assyrians are going to come in and they're going to conquer the land. And they're going to take over. They're going to gouge the eyes out of their king. Okay? And they're going to lead him away. Okay? And, and shame him. And they're going to just decimate the land. They're going to take the people. So their, their country is going to come to an end. But God is looking down the road. His ultimate promise. I'll make a covenant with them. Now, what's interesting is that he mentions the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the creatures that crawl on the ground. So often we forget that God is not just the God of man, but he's also the God of all the creatures. And our relationship with God has an impact on the creatures. Even though we don't know it, it does. It has an impact. Because when there's war, then when there's trouble, when there's poverty, well, they suffer as well. They suffer as well. We saw that when, when, when there were storms in the United States. Uh, I go back to the, to the hurricanes that came into New Orleans and things like that. Not that that was judgment at all, but what happened is that, that the people are suffering, but because who else suffers? It's the, it's the dogs, right? It's the dogs and the animals. And, you know, there's fires that are happening in Australia. Have you heard about these fires in Australia? It's, it's horrible. And, and they're losing all of the animals. The, the, the mammals and the kangaroos and the marsupials and things like that, they're all being destroyed. This is, not just, this is not just affecting the people, but it's also affecting the animal. God's mention of the animal reminds me that Jesus said that, don't you know that two sparrows won't fall to the ground without your heavenly Father knowing of it? And you are so much more to him than sparrows. You're so much more. God recognizes the plight of the animals. He knows those horses. He knows those dogs. He knows that cat. He knows those silly animals in the rescue van that come by the church, right, on Sunday. And they open them up and they're coming out and somebody's got puppies and kittens and stuff like that. I'm so glad they don't do that anymore. <laughs> it was always hard. Children, don't look at those dogs. Don't look at those puppies. So somebody else's. But, but God, is, God cares about the animals. He cares about those animals. So much more than he cares... As, as well for us. I'll abolish bow and sword and weapons of war in the land and they'll make them lay down in safety. Again, this is something that's going to happen in the future because it hasn't happened yet. So I'll betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in loving devotion and compassion, and I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. This is an end time prophecy, which is not unusual. It's not unusual even in the Psalms they'll be talking about something very specific. David will be asking for relief because he's being chased by Saul. And in the middle of the psalm, in the middle of the prophecy, all of a sudden, woo, there's something out there. And you take a look and you say, well, that's, that's prophecy. That's, that's something way in the future. That's way in the future. In fact, when you really take a look at this whole book, and we'll kind of close with this, when you take a look at this book of Hosea, it's interesting because God continues to promise continues to promise that there'll be a day when he's going to restore the people and they'll be his people and they'll, he'll be their God and he's going to take care of them and they'll be faithful. And we say, well, when has that happened? When does that happen? Well, there's a clue. In verse 21, on that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the heavens and they will respond to the earth and the earth will respond with the grain of the new oil and they will respond to Jezreel and I will sow her as my own land. And here it comes. 
and I, and I will have compassion on no compassion. Remember the children of Hosea were called Jezreel from the Jezreel Valley and no and Lorama, which means no compassion. And even though Hosea was called his children, okay, no compassion and named after a horrible battle, okay, or a horrible place where Ahab, where they cut off his toes and children of Ahab, he says, there will be a time when I'll have compassion. And I will say to I will, I will say to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say you are my God. Now, the reason I want to end with that is because Paul, in Romans 9, uses this verse. Paul's making the argument in verse 9, in chapter 9, that he loves Israel, that Paul loves Israel, just as God loves Israel, but God has grafted in a people. Paul is talking to Roman Christians. And he's telling them that even though God had a people called Israel, he has now grafted you in as well. Not instead, as well. God's promise to Israel stands. There's nowhere in the Bible that it says, instead of Israel, I have now chosen the church. It doesn't ever say that. Okay, it doesn't ever say that. It doesn't say that the church is now Israel. It doesn't say that. It says that in addition to God's promises to Israel, I've now also chosen you. What of God, through allowing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to his objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance? Even us, whom he has called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, this is Paul, quoting Hosea, which is really interesting because he didn't have a computer. He couldn't just look this up like I did, okay? He must have known it. He had to go find some scroll somewhere and copy it. Paul says, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very places it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the children of the living God. Okay, so this promise in Hosea and the reason we're reading this is because not only is it great instruction for us about idolatry and the dangers of idolatry and how God looks at that, but also the promises that are made here to Israel are also, not instead, but also promises to us as a people of God. God has a people that were not his people, okay? Where he did not show mercy, he now shows mercy to the Gentiles who call upon the name of the Lord. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? So we got through chapter 2. Wow, wow. That's not bad, huh? You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org. 